0: Well, good morning. It's, it's great to be here. My name is Jason Bartholomew, and I get to, uh, to work with our high school students here and their families and the, uh, the many leaders who help them. And since we've now entered 2017, we're now going to see all sorts of lists, all of those lists that defined the year before, the top songs, the top movies, the top events that took place, top names for boys, top names for girls. And one list that will come out that I couldn't quite find yet because I I think it's going to be generated and we'll see it, are the top list of words that were used, or the list of words that were added to our language. And I found a lot that were submitted, and there are so many more that I can give you this morning. But I found a few that that were interesting to me, so I get to share them with you. Um, The first one is beardtastic. The word is beardtastic. If you were close to the front, you would have seen that George has something that's starting to become beardtastic. Here's the definition. Having perfect... Facial hair is beardtastic. That is a new word. There, another one is teenmentia. Teenmentia, just like it sounds, is a teenager's convenient forgetfulness when asked simple questions. So this, wow, this is a word that could have been in place when I was a teenager as well. It's just now something we have. the third word, I only have five of these. Third word is constracted. It's the act of being confused and distracted <laughs> at the same time. So it's convenient. We don't have to say confused and distracted. Now we just say constracted. And my hope, as I've been preparing, as we look at Second Corinthians nine, you can probably guess where I'm going that you won't be "contracted" this morning as we as we enter God's word. And uh, another one is non-apology. A non-apology, maybe you've heard this even in, um, in the newspaper or things we see, a new, non-apology is a statement that takes the form of an apology but does not acknowledge responsibility or express regret for what has caused offense. We have a couple non-apologies in our house. If you ever say, have an apology and you have the words, but you, in that apology, it's a non-apology, you know, <laughs> I'm sorry I hit you, but you took my toy. You know, that's, this, that doesn't count. You don't get that. Um, finally, this is one I, I'm surprised is new. I've heard it for a while, but, but I guess this is now a new thing. Is bracketology. Bracketology is the activity of predicting the participating teams in a tournament. And typically, it's the NCAA tournament. This has been around for a while, but it's now added. I find words interesting. I have a list of my own favorite words. I don't have time to share them with you. You can come ask me about them. But I, I, find I, I like them more about what, how they sound than what they mean. And uh, having four kids, my wife and I have a, a, a lot of fun words that uh, mean only something to us. You know, I'll give you a couple of them. Dark Vader, skeletons, the color Lello, bersert, Dingle Honkers, stuff Mallows. Those are all words that you, you would, might hear in our family. Um, I think of this, my wife, my wife and I um, first got married we were uh, looking for furniture, and we went to a furniture store. We were looking for furniture to put into our, our apartment at the seminary where we're, I was at. And we were looking for furniture, and um, we were looking for a dining room table. And we were at this, this furniture store that was an unfinished furniture, furniture store. So you'd go in, and you'd, you'd finish it and stain it yourself. And I remember looking at these tables, and, and we were talking and discussing, and I said, well, we, we want one with a sleeve in it. And she looked at me like, A what? A sleeve, you know, you put them in the table and it makes them longer. She goes, you mean a leaf? No, not a leaf, a sleeve. And so we had this whole exchange in this furniture store. I'm like, where I said, a leaf, a leaf's on a tree. It's not a leaf. And and her response, a sleeve, a sleeve is on your shirt, now I realized that at that point it took me a little while, but I realized that as a kid I called it a sleeve. And my own parents are here now today, to uh, to hear about this. Um, that that they let me call it a sleeve, <laughs> to where I still even telling you the story I have to go. Wait, what is it? Which one is it? Is it a leaf or is it a sleeve? So parents, you have to correct these things. Uh, you know, <laughs> if your kid is 15 and they're calling it a sleeve you gotta, you got to fix that. you gotta, you got to change that for them. The reason why I'm talking about words is the passage of Scripture that we're looking at this morning finds Paul so excited about grace, so excited about the generosity that comes as a result of grace, that he creates a word. He, he can't find a word. He, we, we see this in, in, in um, literature. Nowhere else do we see this word. Until this moment where Paul says, okay, this is it. This is the word. He's so passionate that he, that he creates this. So stay with me this morning. Don't get distracted, And I'll tell you what that word is. If you're new to West Shore Free, I, like Nate, am really glad that you're here. Really glad that you joined us. We're in the midst of a series titled Strength and Weakness. And we're looking at the 2 Corinthians. We're looking at a, a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in the, in the province of Achaia. And uh, it's a it's a letter or an epistle that he's writing to them, and Pastor Trent, our senior pastors, helped us understand the structure of Second Corinthians through an acronym called the the described as Dew D E W like Mountain Dew D E W, Dew. Do, the D stands for the defense of, of his ministry. The first seven chapters, one through seven, is a defense of his, his ministry because it's become under attack. He needs to communicate and defend his calling. He needs to defend defend his mission. And defend his motives. And the E of do stands for the encouragement to be generous. This is where we find ourselves this morning. With chapter 8 and chapter 9. The, he's encouraging us to be generous. And, and that's where we see this. We're going to talk a lot about that. Um, the W includes the warnings against those who are trying to undermine the gospel and the advancement of the church. And we'll see that in 10 through 13. So we are right there in the E of Do. Before Christmas, Pastor Trent spent two weeks in chapter 8 looking at generosity. You might remember, if you were with us, the first week he unpacked how the Incarnation, Jesus' complete life on earth, as um, fully God and fully man, makes us generous. And this Incarnation causes us to be grateful and fills us with faith. The second week, still in chapter 8, Pastor Trent shared with us how we, as Christ followers, become rich through what Christ has given us. Remember this, this verse that we looked at in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 8? For you know by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. I want to quote, this is, this is something that Pastor Trent shared in the, in the second, um, second sermon, second part on generosity. He said this, he said, you have received a great gift. And now it has transformed you. Now be who you are. That phrase, be who you are, is going to help us this morning. This points to God's righteousness, not our righteousness. Sometimes we can jump into Scripture and participate in listening like we are now and hearing God's Word, and we can leave with this overwhelming sense that we have to do more. That we've got try to, try to try to get active and busy and you know we hear about a committed follower of Christ and we go, oh man, I'm not doing that. I need to do that. I need to be more, do more. Please don't sit here this morning and leave with a list of things that you need to do. If you do that, you're going to leave with a desire to be more religious. And this isn't what Paul's describing as we look in a second. The generosity that Paul describes here comes as a result of who Christ transforms you to be, organically. So free of additives, free of anything extra, outside influences. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus yet, I'm really glad that you're here. And I hope that this morning you'll hear of one of the many blessings that, that we, you can receive, that we can have as a follower of Christ, that we get this, that we, we get to enjoy this. It's not a list of rules. It's not what we do. It's about grace. It's about transformation and what Jesus has done on our behalf. So we're going to look at generosity in its purest form. Organic generosity, if you will. And I'm not going to give you a bunch of steps at the end towards generosity because you'll see that it comes from within. It comes from a transformation of the gospel. And let me, I'm going to walk through 2 Corinthians 9 and then we can compare generosity that is organic or generosity that is not organic. And if the term organic is bothering you because all you can think of is overpriced vegetables, <laughs> I want you to think about it in its natural sense, in its purest form without anything else added to it, anything else put in there. What did, what did Jesus intend? What did Paul intend? A few years ago, I heard a definition for generosity that has stuck with me. I didn't come up with this. I couldn't find the source of it. So I, don't give me credit for this. But generosity is responding to the grace of God for the good of people so that God gets the glory. Let me say that again. Generosity is responding to the grace of God. For the good of people, so that God gets the glory. As I walked through this and studied this, I realized, I recognized that this chapter just, just helps that definition. And it's more important it's, it, what's in the word here, but this helps us understand. You're gonna see this, you're gonna see Paul describe the grace of God. In fact, the grace of God, I have a definition there um, that grace is undeserved favor, it's getting a gift that we don't deserve. Love, you heard that before. It's not something you deserve, and the gift is Jesus. The gift is Jesus' righteousness. So, responding to the grace of God, and this grace, it, it, you know, we're in the section of, of Paul's letter as well as trying to tell you in chapter eight and nine about generosity. In eight and nine, he mentions the word grace seven times. He's connecting grace with generosity. It's throughout. There's no doubt that he ties that. It's the undeserved favor that allows us to give. Not only does he allow the seed to grow, but he provides the initial seed in the first place. So turn with me, 2 Corinthians 9, verses, we're going to start in verse 1. Seems like a good place to start. Now it is superfluous. Talk about a good word. That, that word needs to be added to my, my list as well. But it's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia is ready has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you, to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So Paul acknowledges the readiness of the Corinthians. Corinth was the capital of Achaea. So when he says Achaia, he's talking about a province. Macedonia is also a province, so he's kind of matching geographic terms. Um, Macedonia, they're both provinces. Achaia, um, includes Corinth, so you can almost re, you know, interchange those two words. And Macedonia includes Philippi and Thessalonica. So when we see a letter to the Philippians or a letter to the Thessalonians, that's Macedonia. And the, the Corinthians were prosperous, and they had the necessities of life and more. They had an abundance. Scripture describes the Macedonians as, as the opposite of, of not being in that spot. Um, it was Paul's boasting about Achaia's readiness to give a year prior that had stirred the Macedonians. He talked about them. He, he, he bragged about, look at what they're doing. Look how generous they are. And this made the Macedonians who were poor go, we, we want to be a part of that too. We, 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 we desire to, to be generous as well. So it would have been redundant or superfluous for Paul to write to the Corinthians about giving. Because they would already received Paul's directive. This is in 1 Corinthians, Let's look at this, it's, it'll be up on the screen, 1 Corinthians 16, he, he gives direct um, specifics on how this is to be done. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come." And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So he sets this up. There's a a standard. Please realize that this is descriptive, not prescriptive. This isn't how we need to do this today. But the gift that Paul is talking about is a collection of money. A lot of times when we talk about giving, we talk about generosity, we we talk about time, we talk about talent. Yes, you should steward your time. Yes, you you should steward your talent or abilities. But I think at times we can hide behind those and we can go, yeah, it's, it's just like time as well. Paul's talking about a gift of money. And so for this morning's purposes, I'd like to stay there. I think we need to stay there. When he, when he assembled a trio of people to go and collect this, um, it wasn't to persuade them to give because they had already decided to give in their heart. It was to bring completion, the gift that they had already decided to do. Paul knew that the Jerusalem church, this is where the gift is going, was extremely poor. And by this time, they were stripped of anything they had. They were under crazy persecution, more extensively than the beginning. And they were just in a dire situation. This had to happen. This gift had to be given. So imagine how humiliating it would have been. If the poverty-stricken Macedonian church, who probably would have gone with Paul to Corinth to receive this gift, what if they got there and, you know, they heard of the Corinthians' readiness to give and they had reached into their own affliction and poverty? I I didn't say this. I should have. But they had to beg Paul to give the Macedonian church. Imagine if if they're with Paul and they go there and um, picture this ragged party appearing in, in Corinth and finding the wealthy Corinthians unprepared. The embarrassment would be awful. It'd be terrible. So Paul by no means belittles them for their delay in completing their gifts. Just the opposite, he elevates them by underscoring the effect. He said, you have had a, a great influence on the Macedonian church. You've done something great here. We're going we're to make sure this happens. In his boasting, Paul again shows us his faith in Christ rather than his confidence in the Corinthians. So verse 6, if you're still with me, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Here we see two ways to sow or two ways to give. We could carefully place each seed in a line. Here's a seed for this one. Here's a seed for this one. And this harvest isn't going to produce much. But the, the image that he, we see here the har, the, the, is a sower striding in long steps along the earth, reaching into his abundance and just spreading that seed out and, and just heaving it out there. And, and just going, you know, let, let, me, let me let this, let the, uh, the swings in the arm. When spring came, the earth will sprout according to what the harvest, and it will be significant. In the previous chapter, chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul uses manna. And he describes manna as an appeal to be generous. In 8.15, he quotes Exodus, and he says, As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. And the words in in Exodus describe the measuring of manna in the wilderness that the Israelites had gathered, in which the differences of the amount each one gathered for their family for that day wondrously disappeared. No one had too much. Those who attempted to hoard it and and have too much... It, the next morning, it became full of worms and began to stink. One only had to gather what was necessary for that day. So by appealing to the gift and the gathering of manna, the chapter before, he's reminding the Corinthians that all, they have to, all that they had been given has been given by God. They didn't do anything. All they had to do is go and gather that. He also shows that God will supply their needs. There's a difference between this picture of manna and this picture of the farmer sowing seeds, and the difference has to do with, with how much one sows upon blessing. One shows, one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. The one who sows upon blessing or bountifully shall likewise reap bountifully. The manna came as a gift. It required no sowing, but the ga- only the gathering up of the gift. In farming or agriculture, the contrast, the act of sowing is directly related to the amount that one reaps. Don't miss that sowing in this means giving. When you give a lot, God gives back. This reminds me of Luke 6, 38. Give and it will be given unto you. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over. God will literally pour it in your lap. One commentator stated that God gives back blessings to those who give as a matter of blessing. It's not how much we give, but rather that we give as generously as possible with an attitude and joy of blessing. Let's go to verse 7. Each one must give as he decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful, that word is is hilarious, where we get the word hilarious, he loves a cheerful giver. Don't miss this. God doesn't care about the money. He cares about your heart. And part of the reason that Paul sends Titus and these others ahead of time, he wants to make sure there's not an embarrassment. But part of the reason is so that they, they won't feel like, oh, my, the Apostle Paul is here. We better, we better give something. We better hurry up and give. And there would be this a compulsion to give. There would be this, uh, this embarrassment. If, I, if we don't give, all this is going to be bad. That's not why he wanted that to happen. So part of that is, is the reason um, that's not how he wants the Corinthian church to give. Paul urges that each one is to give just as they had determined in advance. They have been committed to collection for some time, and most likely they considered already what they would give. And the need to complete the collection should not necessarily change those prior decisions. So we must not be sad givers who give grudgingly or mad givers who give because we have have to. Let me say that again. We, must not, we don't need to be sad givers who give grudgingly or mad givers who give because we have to, of necessity. But we should be glad givers. Givers who give because we've experienced the grace of God. Let me try that again. We have in our, in our uh, worship time together, we have kids who are um, first grade and, and up, and I'm so glad. Isn't it great to be able to worship together in this place? Um, for a minute, for just a couple minutes, if you are older than, I don't know, 15 just tune out for this time. I'm just going to talk to you guys, you as uh, kids 15 and under. I tr- I'm trying to tell your parents something. I'm trying to tell the adults in the room try- something. I'm trying to tell you something. And um, I want to tell you in, in a way, so kids, listen up. Stare a hole into me. I'm going to tell you in a way so maybe you can help me teach your parents this, okay? And you're going to get this. We must not be sad givers, Okay? Who give grudgingly. Give because someone told us we have to. We don't we must not be mad givers. Follow me? We are connecting here. Who give because we have to out of necessity, but we should be glad givers, right? You getting that? Who give because we have experienced the grace of God. Will you help me teach this to your parents? Will you help me teach this to the adults in the room? Adults, you can come back. You can tune in again. The idea of not giving reluctantly with a cheerful heart has its origins in Deuteronomy. We can find it in Deuteronomy as well, where we see the sabbatical year of remission. Every seven years, Israel was to forgive all debts. And in Deuteronomy 15, we see that that God is, is giving them the command that when it gets to be year six, and you see that your brother isn't going to be able to repay you, don't mistreat them. He says this, Deuteronomy fifteen ten. He says, "You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the need and to the poor, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Don't miss that this an attitude of the heart." That's, that's happening there as well. And this was under the old covenant. Now under the new covenant, those in Christ are to make such ge- cheerful generosity their daily practice. Not every seven years. This is to be their heart all the time. I don't know if you're, you're wondering, okay, why did I choose this Sunday to come back to church? If, if, if that's you. Don't get worried. We aren't going to collect a second offering this morning. I promise you. I haven't been given that authority. We're not going to do that. Um, please don't give because I told you to give. Don't give because the person next to you gave. That's not the heart by which we're to be generous. That's under compulsion. Instead, there's a transformation of our souls when the grace and the mercy of God and the free gift of salvation, we become the the free gift of salvation. Um, We've been dealt with God graciously. We begin to deal graciously with others. As we experience the generosity of God, We become generous ourselves. That's just what happens. So in thinking about the cheerful giver, let me show you something. Jesus, the greatest giver of all, ties sacrifice and love and joy together. He laid down his life for us because he loved us. We see in John 15, he he talked about how he is the vine and we are the branches, that all we have to do is abide in him, and we'll produce fruit. He doesn't say, hey, try as hard as you can to produce fruit. We abide in him, and we produce fruit. And in that section, at, towards the end, and this is right before he's crucified, he says this, verse 15, John 15, verse 11, says, these things I, spoke, I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So Jesus is a cheerful giver. And because he loved us, there was a joy in his life, even when he was laying down his life. There's a remarkable verse in Hebrews 12, 12 two. Look at this. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. This is Jesus. There was a joy in him going to the cross for us. Do you see that? That's amazing. It's unbelievable. Even though through the suffering on the cross, there was a joy in his life. Even through the agony, it was eclipsed by a great joy. So he, he ties love, sacrifice, and joy. They work together. Let's keep going. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. And God is able, I want to highlight that. God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. I I want to read that verse again. It's so good. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Isn't how many times Paul uses the word all or Every. See, also that phrase, God is able. There's so much behind that phrase. I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were facing the fiery furnace, the punishment by Nebuchadnezzar because they wouldn't bow down to another idol. Remember their response. Remember what they said. Daniel 3, 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, who we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. See that? They believe he's able. Do you believe God is able? Do you believe he's able to make all grace abound to you, like he says here? He's able to supply all your needs. Paul is emphasizing how comprehensive and how ultimate God's goodness is. As we've seen, this giving of God doesn't exclude but includes the giving of the Corinthians. God is able to cause all grace to abound to you. That in everything, always having all sufficiency, you might be abound unto every good work. The Corinthians are simultaneously to be both active and passive. So as they're they're giving, they're receiving. Part of that giving, they, they, they receive it right away. Precisely because the grace of God given to them, they'll be empowered and rich to give others. As I was studying this, there's, there's this phrase that theologians or that, that um, Bible scholars use, and it's grace giving. And grace giving is when God blesses the gift, but also the giver at the same time. So as great as this, this image is of, of a farmer planting seeds and, and you know, um, planting with abundance or planting planting little by little, that there's still a, a time they have to wait for, that, that, um, for, for the fruit to happen, for the harvest to take place. But what's happening with this grace-giving is that actually there's not a wait. There's a joy that comes in the giving, a joy that happens simultaneously at the same time. The farmer has to wait for the harvest, but the believer who practices grace-giving begins to reap the harvest immediately. The Corinthians aren't Aren't obligated to give this. They're not obligated to give a return gift. Did you have this during Christmas? Did you get a gift from a neighbor or a coworker you weren't expecting? And there's this kind of like, ooh, I didn't get you anything. You know, that the sense of, I, I, I owe you something for this. That wasn't there. In this, Paul quotes from Psalm 112 Here we see the righteous man who has no fears because his heart is sincere and obedient to the Lord. He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness, Endures forever. So just as the psalmist didn't earn his righteousness, neither do we. Neither did the Corinthians. So they're to give out of the righteousness that is already theirs. It's to come from within. I hope you're hearing that. We are granted participation in God's very giving, we ourselves are made to be givers. See why Paul's getting excited about this, why he can't even start using words that he has. He supplies seed to the sower. I'm I'm sorry, verse 10. He supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed. Why? For sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Behind and before any giving, there must be something to give. So so not only does God give them the, the, the blessing, but he gives them the seed in the first place. He gives them the money in the first place. We can only give to others what we've already received. But catch what he says here. He blesses our giving. He will, he will increase what you have, not so that you hoard it, not so that you gain more and more, but you see why? So that you can give more. It's not so that you can buy more for yourselves. God is looking for a conduit by which he could give. He's looking for people who are good at giving so that he can continue to to give to you so that you can keep doing that. God's looking for a conduit by which we can give to others. The more you give, the more he will give to you so that you can give. When you give generously and joyfully to God's kingdom purposes, he pours it right back to you because he knows your heart is a heart that gives. And you're, not, you're, and you're going to continue to give. Look at verse 11. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Do you see this thanksgiving to God? This is, this is the glory of the weightiness given to God. Remember the definition of generosity, responding to the grace of God for the good of people so that God gets the glory. God's receiving the glory here. What's going to happen is the Jerusalem saints are going to receive their gift, and they're going to praise and thank God for it. They know that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father, from God who is Father, and many thanksgivings come from many hearts. There's many people involved here. Perhaps you've seen something like this. If you experience kids giving a present to somebody else, if you have kids or you watch this happen, and you as a parent are the one who went and purchased the gift. I saw this last night. Our, our youngest um, had preschool pictures taken. And she really didn't do much to get this preschool picture. T- I mean, she did smile. I, I'll give her that. But she, she had this picture taken, and then last night we gave this picture to her grandparents. And it was, it was as if, she felt as if, I'm giving you this picture. I mean, they thanked her for that picture. She didn't pay for that picture, but, but they thanked her for that picture. But she felt this, this sense of, of joy and, and enjoyment of being the one who gave them this picture, this great picture of herself. And we enjoyed it as her parents, as the ones who really took care of that picture. We, we were able to see that. It can be entertaining and fun to be a part of. God enriches us so that we will give more bountifully. Do you see it? The mission itself is an act of service in the worship of God. It must come from the heart. We're going to keep going. Verse 13. I'm going to read the rest of this. 13. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. He ties the gospel and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. The gift is not forgotten, but God the giver in his work stands at the center of this thanksgiving. Above all else, the recipients of the collection shall find the giver, God, in this gift. So there's two reasons God, they, they will glorify God. One is because their confession of the gospel of Christ. Jerusalem, the, the recipients of this gift are going to, to rejoice because they're going to find there's a commonality between them and the Corinthians. That their confession of the gospel of Christ, they aren't alone. They're, they're, they're poor. They're being persecuted for their faith, and they're realizing we have brothers and sisters even though they're far away, there's a connection there. The second reason that they will, they will glorify God I've kind of talked about it already is the actual gift. Again it's God who gets the glory and not the Corinthians. The collection is simultaneously a confession of Christ and a meeting of needs. In one and the same act, there is receiving and giving. See here that the gospel creates community. There's a natural community. That's incredible. They shall long for you. That's what it says. This longing for each other. In the eyes of the Jerusalem Christians, the Gentile Corinthians were radically other. This was not just an emotion. It includes action. The only action that the impoverished believers in Jerusalem could take is they shall long for you and petition on behalf of you. The distance between Corinth and Jerusalem doesn't hinder their fellowship. It merely reduces it to the essential nature. They are bound together together by God in Christ. It's amazing. We give because of the gift of Jesus. Don't miss this. It isn't the persons or the churches that are outstanding, but it's the grace of God upon them. They are radically changed because of this gift that they did nothing to deserve. And that's where this is overflowing. Now, I wanna, I'm want to. i going to do this quickly, but I want contra- to contrast organic generosity with natural generosity, with the generosity, with generosity that isn't, you know, let me try that again. I want to contrast organic generosity with generosity that is not organic. That's as simple as what I was trying to say there. Before I do, let me tell you um, a little bit more of why I'm using the word organic. Um, my wife and I, when we were dating, we were about a couple years into dating, we uh, spent a summer um, separate. I was in Florida, and she was in Minnesota working, and I was, I was working as an intern at a church. And I spent some time doing something, and I only recently thought of this. Um, I spent quite a bit of time creating these letters um, that, that I would send to Greta. And, and um, I kind of sent her this thing all scrambled up so she'd have to figure out what it was. And you'll see one of the letters here. And I spent a lot of time on this. So I, so I created this G, and on the back I, I wrote a handwritten note. And then I found a place where I'd take a, pla- a picture that ha- started with G. So I was in Florida, and we, I happened to be at the Florida-Georgia state line. So I took a picture with that G next to the the um, you know welcome sign to Georgia, and what I was doing is I was sending the the the, um, the the code or the the phrase I was sending was I love Greta, so ten letters, and I spent this time creating these letters. I mean now you can do this in 30 seconds on Instagram or something like that, but at this time I couldn't. But I spent probably 10 to 12 hours doing this. I had my family helping me out, you know, finding different things that I could use to send this to to Minnesota to show this, and it was fun. I was, I still am in love, but I was in love with Greta, and I, and I couldn't, I, I wanted to do this. I couldn't believe, in fact, this morning we were looking at what I wrote in the back, and I was so excited for her to figure out what it was I was trying to send her. I sent it one at a time. I, I delayed it, and um, there's a couple things where I'm like, I had I had a post-it over what it is I'm gonna say. Like, if you're really curious, lift this post-it, and you'll, it'll say it underneath it. I share this with you because as I think about this, if you were to say, okay, Jason, I, I need you to spend 12 hours on a project for me. I need you to create these letters. I need you to think of places where the letters coincide. It would be awful. I'd be like, what? Why? Why am I doing it? I mean, I would be grudgingly. I, I wouldn't want to do this. Apart from the relationship, I, I don't want any part of that. But because of this relationship that I had, because of this love, because of this joy, it was joyful. It really was. It was fun. I didn't even think about how long it took for me to do this. That's what we're talking about with this generosity. That for a generosity to come out of your love for Christ. What does your relationship with Jesus cause you to do? My relationship with Greta caused me to do that. What does your relationship with Jesus cause you to do? If you're here and you, you don't have that yet. I'm glad you're here, as I said earlier. So let's look at these. Generosity that is organic and generosity that's not organic. I'm going to kind of fly through these. Generosity that is not organic comes out of compulsion, just as we saw in the text, or what others have told you, or what you perceive the expectation to be. The compulsion could be external or internal. You could create this yourself, or you could see it, or you could feel it. It can be told to you. The heart of a transformed, mature believer in Christ doesn't go, well, I better give so that God will be happy. Here's my 10%. That's not what they do. Generosity that is organic comes a result of God's grace. It comes a result of the gospel. It's automatic, just as I was sharing. You just, you just give because that's what you want to do with, with that with you, with who you are. Generosity that is not organic has little to no eternal value. Generosity that is organic takes part in God's kingdom work. We get to be God's agent of giving. We just saw this. Another thing, generosity that is not organic attempts to make ourselves look good. Can you give without someone else seeing it, without it being public? Generosity that is organic gives God the glory or the credit that he's due. Remember our definition, generosity is responding to the grace of God for the good of people so that God gets the glory. We see that in this, this um, chapter. Generosity that is not organic is limited to what we can muster up. Generosity that is organic increases the more we give because God is able and will increase what we have to give. The gospel allows us to be in direct relationship with God. And as such, there's no obstacle to what he desires to do through us. And this is what we see here. He is able to do more than we realized. So as I stated before, I don't have a list of ways to be generous. It has to come from a transformed heart. Search your heart for the generosity that Jesus put there. Jesus is the only one who can transform your heart. The only action step I have for you is run to Jesus. If you find, you sit here and you go, I'm uncomfortable. I, please give me something. Give me an action step. Run to Jesus. Let him change you from the inside. That's where, that's that, that's that organic, that's that natural generosity. Don't muster it up. Don't create it from nothing. So I promise you I'd share a word that, uh, that Paul creates. This is, this is where it is. It's found in verse 15. Um, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The word inexpressible, this is the first time the Greek word translated inexpressible appears anywhere in Greek language. Paul could find no word to express the extreme character of God's gift. So he made it up. A word that says, in effect, that the gift can't be described. You ever been there yourself? You ever been so enamored by something that you didn't have words for what you're trying to describe? Don't miss this from Paul. Paul. The gift is so amazing that it can't be captured in word. The term is anecdotos, and it signifies this gift can't be recounted. It can't be narrated. It can't be told. It implies a story beyond all telling. A story that again and again, it calls forth amazement, wonder, and praise. And the story of God's gift himself for our salvation cannot finally be told in full. It's unspeakably wonderful. Yet precisely because it's unspeakably wonderful, it must be spoken and retold again and again. So as we look forward to this new year, consider this. Consider how your generosity can be genuine. Consider how it can come from within as a heart. Amazing grace is the song we're going we're to close with. And truly, this is what that is. Paul is thinking about how amazing God's grace is, as he described it, as he connected grace with generosity. That we as broken pieces could be put together to be a part of what he's doing. You get to participate in the blessing and be a blessing. Remember Trent's quote, be who you are. Let's pray. Father, we, like Paul, thank you for this inexpressible gift to be able to be givers. Help us to give in a way that brings you honor and glory. Help us to give in a way that doesn't come out of compulsion, that doesn't come out of being, being angry or frustrated, but let it be pure. Let it pour out of us. Let the world know us by how, we, how generous we are. We need your Holy Spirit. We need you to help us do that. Thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for the opportunity to bring you honor and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.